You know, every one of us look differently at the cross, don't we? It was that way the day that Jesus died, the day that they nailed his hands and his feet to the cross. The people who were there that day, the onlookers, each one of them, as you saw, looked differently at Jesus. There were those who were there who would have looked at Jesus and they were shocked and dismayed and confused by all that was going on. Some jeered, they laughed, and they mocked. And others, while sad, had a certain hope, a strange peace about what was happening. It was that way then, and it's that way now. As we look to the cross, as we look at the cross, as we consider what happened on that Friday of Holy Week, we all have different opinions, different impressions, different views of the cross. We all have different lenses of how we look at Jesus and what he did on the cross for us. Some of you are like those who were shocked and dismayed and confused. How in the world could God send a man, his son, to die a brutal death on the cross? How in the world could he have done that? Couldn't he have redeemed mankind in a different way? Some of you look at the cross and you laugh. I mean, let's be honest, how silly this religion is. How simple-minded, how small-minded that religion is. It's laughable that God would somehow redeem himself with mankind in the first place. But you say, well, let's let those Christians have their day or two a year to celebrate. In fact, I'll even come along and find out what it's all about. And then there are others of you who look at the cross, and while it might make you sad, it might bring sorrow to your heart, there's a simple peace in your heart that you know that Jesus did it for you, and he did it for your sins. And so with humanity comes a variety of different views of the cross. But I'll tell you this, there's one thing that is common among all of us when we look to the cross. It's this, we all have a decision to make, don't we? We all have a decision to make. All of us who are able-minded people have a decision to make when it comes to the cross of Christ. God demanded that we make a decision about Jesus. He demanded that humanity, each one of us, make a decision as to whether or not we believe personally that he died for our sins. And so each one of us, whether it was years ago whether it was a week ago or whether it's going to be today, have a decision to make when we look at the cross. We all have to decide whether or not he died for our sins. You know, the story of the cross is a Friday story. It happened on Friday. But the real story of Easter, the real story of the life is a Sunday story. The real thing that we celebrate is not the cross, but it's the resurrected Christ. It's the empty tomb. The Bible tells us that on Friday, Jesus died a brutal death on the cross in agony, and he did it for our sins, and that they put him in a tomb, and they rolled a stone away. And on Sunday, that stone was rolled away, and his body was gone. The tomb was empty. And that's what we celebrate today. That's what we come to sing and give God glory for. But you know what? For some of you today, 
not only do you have to make a decision about the cross and whether you believe it's true or not, but you have a decision to make about the empty tomb and whether or not you believe that Jesus died and rose again for your sins. You see, the real power to say was not in Christ's death, but in the, dr the dramatic, powerful, and truthful claim that Jesus made when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Will you pray with me? God, thank you so much that you are the resurrection and the life. Thank you, God, for that dramatic claim that you made, that claim that is truth. And God, today I pray in the strong name of Jesus for those who are gathered here today who may not have ever considered that you died for their sins. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just do an amazing thing in their life, pierce their hearts and pierce their souls, God. And I pray that the changing power of life would be open to them and that their eyes would be open to the truth of your word, that you died and three days later you rose again from the dead. God, we give you glory and honor for that. God, the power of salvation, the power of eternal life is not just in the cross. It's in an empty tomb. And I pray that we would realize that today as we walk through your statement, I am the resurrection and the life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, good morning. Happy Easter this morning. Glad you're here. My name's Todd. I'm the lead pastor here at Hilton Head Island Community Church. I'm so glad that you're here to worship. Those of you who prayed for uh, good weather, yeah, keep on praying for anything, really. I mean, wow. Uh, God just has done an amazing thing. Two years in a row, we have uh, met here in what Cynthia, my wife, likes to call called a, um, a, a covered environment. And uh, so anyway, it's a tent, okay? Anyway, but we're glad that you're here, and we're thankful that God provided great weather. Uh, we continue in our series, and we're in part four of this series called I Am. And in this series, what we're doing is we're walking through certain statements that Jesus made about himself, and what we're learning from those statements are things about God, we're learning about things about Jesus, but we're also learning things about humanity, and my prayer today is, is that many of you will learn something about yourself and maybe the way that you respond to God calling. And so today we're going to be, and if you have your Bibles, you can turn to John. We're going to be in John chapter 11. Jesus is summarizing why he's laying down his life for the sheep. And he also says that no one, I want you to catch that, no one takes his life from him. And he lays his life down willingly for the sheep. You see, that's what Jesus did when he went to the cross. No one forced him there. He laid his life down willingly for you and for me and for our sins. And so Jesus goes to the cross sacrificially. He does it voluntarily, and he does it for you and for me. And that's the basis and the precursor of our message today in John 11. I love this passage. It's a very colorful passage as Jesus has an interaction with some of his followers and he has an interaction with some of his closest friends here in John 11. You see, Jesus heard word that one of his great friends, a man by the name of Lazarus, he heard word that Lazarus was sick. And Jesus was so concerned about Lazarus that he did, wait a minute, nothing. He did nothing for Lazarus. Do you know why Jesus did nothing for Lazarus? Because he knew that God would heal him. 
And he told those messengers that came to him and said, your friend Lazarus is sick. He's in Bethany. You need to go and be with Lazarus and raise him from the dead. And Jesus said, no, God is going to do it. God's going to raise him from the dead. He's going to be fine. And so Jesus did nothing. And it kind of shocked some of his followers. In fact, the Bible tells us that the next day he went further away from Bethany into Judea. And so he traveled even further away from where Lazarus is. Well, a few more days go by, and it seems like Jesus is wrong because they bring word to him that Lazarus has fallen asleep, which essentially means that Lazarus is dead. And so Jesus decides that he's going to take his followers, not for his sake, but for their sake, to see Lazarus. And so they go and they visit Lazarus, Lazarus, and they run into Martha and Mary, the sisters of Lazarus and, Lazarus. and Jesus talks to Martha, and he says, Martha, your brother Lazarus, he will be healed. And we'll take a look at Martha's response there and talk about her great faith and her lack of faith. And, and we'll find out kind of uh, what she went through there uh, responding to Jesus. She says that uh, he, he will be resurrected on the last day. But Jesus takes the opportunity and he turns the conversation on a dime. And he takes the opportunity to give a, yet another I am statement about himself. Take a look at John eleven twenty-five 25, and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will, what is that next word? Live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And then he ends the statement with a question. And he says, do you believe this. Now, if you have your notes this morning, you can take a look. We're going to be walking through those notes this morning and kind of using it as a guide to our message. And I want to draw your attention to the key point there, and it's this. Jesus's most audacious claim is that he rose from the dead and that faith placed in that claim will lead to eternal life. Jesus's most audacious claim is that he rose from the dead and that faith placed in that claim will lead to eternal life. And the question for us to ponder today, the question that all humanity must answer is, do you believe? It's the question that he asked Martha. We all must make a decision, but in this case, with this I am statement, Jesus comes right out and he asks Martha, do you believe? Now, this Verse can be, these two verses can be broken up into three different things, and it's kind of how we'll follow our notes this morning. First, there's a claim. Second, there's a promise. And third, there's a question. And so we're going to be taking a look at it in that order. The first point this morning is receive Jesus' greatest claim. I am the only way to escape death and find eternal life. Receive Jesus' great claim. I am the only way to escape death and eternal life. Now, to really understand this, if you have your Bibles there, you can take a look at verse 21, and these verses will be on the screen, because I want to take a look at the exchange between Jesus and Martha. Please don't miss this, because I think what you're going to find is you're going to find maybe yourself in Martha in some of her response. Here's how this goes, verse 21, John 11. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Okay, the first thing she does is Martha goes down the road of almost blaming Jesus for Lazarus' death, okay? And then she catches herself. Have you ever made a statement and you wish you could get it back? 
I think that's Martha in this instance. She, then she says to, uh, to Jesus, Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. Excuse me, verse 22. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. She kind of catches herself. Verse 23, Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. Verse 24, Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. We'll come back to that in a moment. And Jesus then says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, in this claim that Jesus makes, there's a lot that we can learn about us. In Martha's response, and I want to take, before we look at the claim that Jesus made, I want to look at Martha's response. Jesus made a statement, your brother will rise again. He didn't ask Martha a question. He didn't try to provoke something from her, but she took the opportunity to respond to what Jesus said, and she said these words, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And I think Martha does two things in that statement that we have the tendency to do when it comes to pondering religious issues or questions of faith. The first thing that Martha did, and this isn't in your notes, this is extra, a little freebie on Easter Sunday morning, okay? The first thing that Martha does is she gives an easy, religious, rote answer. She gives Jesus an answer to, wait a minute, a question he didn't ask. She responds to Jesus with a religious, rote thing that was in her memory, and all she did was repeat what she knows, and in doing so, she just gave what we call today a Sunday school answer to a religious issue. I think we do that sometimes when it comes to things of the faith, don't we? We give religious answers to things that we really need to give personal answers to. You see, Jesus didn't want to know how much Martha knew. What she was saying there is, is yeah, Jesus, I know that Lazarus is going to rise again at the end of the age, at the end times, because she was of the Jewish faith, and they believed that at the end of the age that all believers would rise again. She was giving the answer that she knew. She just blurted out the religious answer that she knew. But Jesus wasn't looking for that. He never is looking for the religious answer from you. He wants to know what you believe. He wants for you to stand on your own and figure things out. So Martha gave just a rote religious answer that she probably had learned that she may not have even believed that may have come down from her parents or her rabbi or someone that she followed. And so she just gave this rote answer. The second thing that she did is she does what we so often do. She starts the, the conversation off or she starts the answer off with, I know. How many times do we start a conversation with God off with, I know, I know, I know. I have a seven-year-old. I figured out something about seven-year-olds. They know everything. And parents of teenagers, I know, I hear it gets worse, okay? So anyway, I have a lot of time with my little seven-year-old in the morning. I take her to school every morning, and we have some great conversations in my truck on the way to school. The other day we had a conversation about the city of Atlanta, which is where she was born, and we were talking about Atlanta. And she said, Daddy, Atlanta is south of here. And I said, no, honey, Atlanta's north of here. And she goes, no, it's south of here. And I said, no, it's north of here. And we went back and forth like this, as daughters and, uh, and daddies do sometimes. And we went back and forth, and she finally said this. She said, Daddy, I know Atlanta's south of here. 
And I went, okay, well, you're right. It is out there, okay? That's fine. Since you know it, we do the same thing with God, don't we? We resolve in our mind what we think we know. We resolve in our mind how we think salvation should occur. We resolve in our mind what we think eternal life is. We resolve in our mind what we think God is like. And in doing so, all we do is try to prove God wrong and prove ourselves right. Jesus wasn't looking for really anything from Martha in that instance, and she gave him what she knew. I want you to hear something. I want you to hear me this morning. If you grew up in church, if you grew up in any kind of religious environment, if you grew up going to church, Christian, Catholic, or otherwise, sometimes those of us who grew up in church, we think we know everything, don't we? You know how I know that? Because I'm one of them. We think we know everything. I want you to hear me this morning. You're not saved by church osmosis. You're not saved because you were around the church growing up. You're not saved because you were close to Christians. You're not saved because you knew the pastor very well. Trust me on that one. We think that we know everything. We think because we were good at things. We think because we've done good that we're saved. Jesus doesn't want to know how much we know up here. He wants our hearts. He wants a personal relationship with us. Jesus' claim is, is that he's the resurrection and the life. That word resurrection means, catch this, to return to life. Isn't that great? Jesus says, I am the resurrection. He says, I am the return to life. Not that I'll give the return to life. I am the return to life. And experts tell us that there are thousands of people in the course of history who have claimed to be the Messiah, and Jesus is the only one who raised someone from the dead. You read later in John 11 that he raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus is the only one who died, and three days later they couldn't find his body. He rose again to be with God. Hear me this morning. Jesus is the resurrection, and he is the life. If you're having trouble accepting the claim that Jesus made, consider the fact that he proved himself right. By raising Lazarus from the dead, he brought life to death. By rising again from the dead himself, he brought life to death. The second thing we must do after receiving Jesus' greatest claim is we must accept Jesus' great promise that I'll bring eternal life to those who believe. At our house, in our refrigerator right now, is an almost empty carton of milk. And you know what it has on it? Stamped on the top, an expiration date. The expiration date is April the 6th, 2012. And you're like, what I learned at Easter this year is Todd needs to go to the grocery store. Todd said they need to go to the grocery store. Milk has an expiration date. At some point in time, the milk goes from being full of life to full of death. It stinks. Bacteria takes over. It's awful. And that's exactly what happens to each one of us at some point in time. Guess what? Whether we like to think about it or not, we all have an expiration date, don't we? Only God knows what it is. Only God knows when it is. But we all will die. 
And at some point in time, we have an expiration date with our bodies, but our souls live on. And we have the opportunity to spend eternity in either heaven or hell. The choice that Jesus gives us, if we will put faith in him, is that we can spend eternity in heaven. We can have life. I want you to catch that. Life for eternity. John eleven twenty six 26 says, He who believes in me will live even though he dies, even though he expires. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. So we must first receive Jesus' great claim. Then we must accept the promise that Jesus made that we can have everlasting life, eternal life, even after our expiration date comes. And finally, we must do this. We must answer Jesus' greatest question, do you believe? He just comes right out and he asks Martha, do you believe? I'm the resurrection and life. Do you believe? And that's the question that he's asking you today. Do you believe? He doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't try to solve a problem. He just asks her, do you believe? Regardless of our view of the cross, regardless of what lens we have on, regardless of our religious upbringing, each one of us has to answer that question, do I believe? A man named Charles Colson, Chuck Colson, he's a former chief counsel for President Richard Nixon. He was one of the Watergate Seven who pled guilty to obstruction of justice and served seven months in prison for his crimes. Well, while in prison, Charles Colson began grappling with the question of who Jesus was. And he realized this. He had to answer it for himself. He had to answer that question for himself. Well, part of what stirred in Charles Colson's mind and in his heart and in his soul to accept Christ as his Savior is a section of C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. It's a book that was written uh, by C.S. Lewis. It's really a compilation of radio interviews and essays that he wrote on the Christian faith. C.S. Lewis was the one who wrote Chronicles of Narnia, just for reference sake. So Charles Colson is reading C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, and he comes upon this. He comes upon the great trilemma. I want you to hear C.S. Lewis's words about the trilemma. And I want you to begin asking yourself the question, well, who do you believe Jesus is? Which one of these three? C.S. Lewis says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, meaning Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis goes on to say, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who, is, who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or on, uh, on the level of a, a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come away without patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And then Lewis goes on and he concludes this way. He says, now it seems to me obvious 
that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. What do you believe this morning? You have to believe something. Do you believe that Jesus was a liar? His, com- his claims completely false? That's hard to do when he raised a man from the dead, isn't it? Do you believe that he was a lunatic, a crazy man? Or do you believe that he was Lord? We all have a decision to make. And the pressing question for each one of us here this morning is, do I believe? Father God, thank you so much for your words. Thank you that you're the resurrection and the life. God, I thank you that a man like Chuck Colson, who's 80-something-year-old today, is in a hospital suffering himself. God, I thank you that he made the decision one day to accept you as Savior. And God, I thank you for C.S. Lewis's thoughts, his words, that God, we have a choice to make. We either accept you, Jesus, as a liar, or we accept you as a lunatic, or we accept you as Lord. And Father God, today in the strong name of Jesus, I pray for those who are in here today who may have never said yes to you being Savior. I pray today that over these next few moments together that they would come to faith in you. Holy Spirit, help them in their disbelief. Help them in their unbelief. Help those who are Christ followers already who have maybe had some doubts. Help them to believe. God, I pray that today we all walk away from here being able to answer yes to the question, do I believe?